Our epistle reading this morning is from the book of 2 Corinthians. We will be reading in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, so that you through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means." For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We continue in 2 Corinthians, and of course the background to 2 Corinthians is predictably 1 Corinthians. And the background to this particular passage, we find near the end of the, the letter, 1 Corinthians 16 begins with these words, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now that passage, along with this passage, and the ones we're going to look at the next couple weeks, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, are often kind of pulled out as tithing passages. Right? They're, they're very convenient to tell people that they need to give, and, and the preacher can say, you see, it's not me, but it's the Word, it's Paul, it's the Holy Spirit, whatever. And, and sometimes on Giving Week or Pledge Sunday or something, one of these passages, especially 2 Corinthians 9, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, will come out and do some of the, the heavy lifting. And, you know, it, it can be. The principles in these passages can be applied to any kind of giving including financial support of your local church, but that's not the context in which they're written. And remember our three rules of Bible study, context, context, and the third one, I can't remember the third one, but it's something like context. This one is actually about a particular offering that's being taken up, and it's being taken up apart from, and even in addition to, 
the regular giving to their Corinthian church or churches. So, so this is a special offering, and, and it's being set aside to be sent to another church, which is the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem was having very difficult times. They were, they were struggling, they were poor, they were persecuted. And Paul had a heart for them, and he wanted to share out of the abundance that other people were experiencing. So that's the background, and yet we do often make it seem like this has in mind one thing and one thing only, what you put in the offering plate on, on Sunday. And I, I've, heard, I, I've done it. I did it on Pledge Sunday uh, years back. I, I preached on 2 Corinthians 9, and I don't think I made any exegetical problems or anything. But I have heard of preachers who think they're really going to hit it out of the park with these passages, postponing the offering until after the sermon. Okay, I did it. We did it. Because I thought on Pledge Sunday, maybe kind of the guilt trip, or I mean the passionate preaching would, would help, you know, land this stuff for you. But if we were going to have like a second offering at the end of this, because I thought maybe God's word would motivate you, if we were going to keep with the context, it wouldn't be a normal offering. It would be, let's do one more round for one great hour of sharing, which is ending this week, by the way, because that goes to relieve people who are suffering around the world. That is like this offering that they were taking up in Corinth. Or perhaps another round uh, for the fellowship fund, which goes to help people who are in trouble or who are suffering or who are, are unable to pay their bills in the area. And, and so that would be kind of, if we were going to zoom in and, and focus with our, our scope and look at exactly what was in view, that would be it. The point is, I don't want you to miss what the Scriptures are teaching here because you've always thought of these as you better put 10% in the plate as it goes by passages. Because you'll find, if you pay attention in the next three weeks, that not only is that not taught in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he actually kind of teaches the opposite about giving and why and how we give. Now, I am going to skip over a few things here Nobody's disappointed about that. But realize I'm going to do it because I want to plug them back in next week or the week after. Because today I really want to focus on one main theme here in chapter 8. And it starts in verse 1 through 3. Let me quickly read them again. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And so he really wants to motivate them and how else to do it but by saying, look at these other churches. The churches in Macedonia. That you're kind of fat and comfortable and rich over here in Corinth in this port city where, where things are good. In Macedonia, it's not going so well. They are in affliction. I love the King James here. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. So their deep poverty, in fact, if you look closely and woodenly at the Greek, it literally says their poverty down to the depth. So, so their poverty is bringing them down to the depths of where someone can be, and yet they're giving with this great liberality. 
They're, they're reaching in and, and giving, and they're an example for you, and they're an example and an inspiration to us. And he kind of answers the question here, where does that come from? How can that happen? How does that arise? And he sort of answers it by saying, listen, kids, when the depth of affliction and the joy in the Lord really love each other, they get together and they birth this amazing selfless giving and generosity. This is one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. That, that out of poverty comes riches and it's multiplied. This is modeled by Christ and it's imitated by us. And it's so backward. And again, expect backward in the church in a kingdom where the first is last where the least are greatest, where the king of kings is born in a barn and dies on a cross, of course it's going to be backwards. Have you seen this? How sometimes those who you would least expect and seem least able give the most freely of themselves? Where where someone who's sick and it hurts to move and they're tired all the time is the one who's there all the time working and helping and comforting and and, and making sure that what needs to get done is done so that God's people can do what God's people need to do. I, I, I absolutely have. I could name names, but that'd get embarrassing for people, so I won't. This happens with monetary giving as well. You see uh, that, that often the people who have the least are the freest with how they give. Uh, apparently in, in Zaire, I'm sure, what then Zaire, uh, you, you remember hearing in the 90s about all the hyperinflation and how their money became worth basically nothing and people had nothing and hospitals were, the gates were welded shut and I mean, things were bad. People were eating every other day and this sort of thing. And yet, when we hear accounts of the church and it's primarily a Christian place where, where the people got together to worship, what was the absolute high point of the worship service was the giving. It was when they, when they gave, they would celebrate and, and, and make a big deal about the honor of being able to give what little they had. And those who didn't have anything to give, like literally didn't even have it to put in, would put their hand in symbolically to show that they were giving of themselves for God to do with what He wanted. We, we've seen this play out here in this building as we've had two refugee congregations come here. Now, many of them are, are doing quite well. They have great work ethic, the, those whom I know, and they're working hard and buying houses and things. But when they first came, they had nothing. And as refugees continue to arrive, they, they have nothing. And yet, I came week after week for a while. Lisa was here a lot too. And we would, uh, I'd be here to preach or to administer communion. And they passed this thing. And yeah, there's a lot of ones, a lot of fives. But there's a lot, like they're giving from what they really don't have. Out of the affliction, out of the poverty, there's this joy and there's giving. And then they're giving to us. Well, we're trying to say, we want to help you because you have nothing. We want to be the, you know, the big Americans who come and say, here you go. Yeah, it'll ruffle their hair or whatever. It didn't work out that way. I found myself learning from them when I thought I could teach these, these people who probably hadn't had much good preaching in these refugee camps. Oh no, they know the Bible. But then... On two occasions, the two different churches, somebody came into my office and said, Pastor, we want Judson to have this. And pulled out like a big 
Tony Montana Scarface sweaty wad of bills with a rubber band around it. And I said, ah, hold on. And I went out and got Richard or somebody and said, I'm not accepting that with just me in here. And, and, and said, thank you. And, and, and accepted it graciously because that, it was a blessing to them to be able to give to us and, and give back. And yet not having, I mean, it's often the person who's got just the fold-out sofa who says, yeah, sure, you can crash with me since you don't have anywhere to go. It's often not the person with the two or three extra bedrooms. Sometimes it is, but often it's not. And, and where we see some of the most inspiring giving of self, it's where we see someone giving out of affliction or poverty. And so accordingly, Paul says, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel also in this act of grace. They'd gotten off the ground and started running well a year earlier. They were the first to want to do this. Yeah, we heard that the church in Jerusalem where Jesus died and where all the apostles had gathered in the upper room, I mean, a very important place, was struggling and suffering, and we want to help. And they had determined, and they, and they started strong. But then, as we've seen in these letters, there's been this drama in the church and this turmoil. There's been conflict and sin and problems and the thing kind of moved to the back seat and then slowed, maybe to a complete stop. And Paul's saying, now that you've repented and things are well again, let's get back to work. Complete what you started. Cross the finish line. And we wouldn't want to see rich Corinth outdone by poor Macedonia. And remember the beginning of the text last week when he, when he says to them, I've been bragging about you and you haven't embarrassed me. And it's kind of this implied, yet... He wants them to see this through. And he calls it twice an act of grace. Not so much because the gift to the Jerusalem church is undeserved, although in that way it kind of is. It's a gift freely given, which is what grace is. But because they've been given grace, and now they're sharing it. The fact that they even have the privilege of doing this giving in Jesus' name is a grace to them, to the church in Corinth. And their giving to the saints in Jerusalem is a manifestation of the grace they've received, and it magnifies the glory of God in the world. So he continues, he says, I say this not as a command, that we'll look at more closely in a couple weeks, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And in verse 10, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So that there won't be this lopsided thing where there was all this excitement at the beginning, and then when it came time to finish, it wasn't any good. Let your performance now catch up with your initial intentions. And he says right off the bat, this benefits you. Or again, the King James, I think, is great. It says, this is expedient for you. This is for your own good. This isn't, yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to help Jerusalem. And yeah, that's kind of why we're doing it. But this is for your own good. 
So finish it. And notice he takes this broad view. He doesn't say, yeah, you started and it petered out and it didn't kind of, let's try again. Let's start over. No, finish it. And I think that in the church, there's often this view of every time we mess up, we ruin it, we taint it. You got to start over. This is why I remember in the youth group in the early 90s, every time we went to anything, everybody went forward and rededicated their life to Jesus because they're, oh, I messed up. I got to, I got to have a new birthday. I got to start again. When in reality, yeah, you messed up, but that's part of the journey. Go to God, confess your sin, repent, be forgiven, and keep on going to finish what was started then. We don't need to continually keep starting over. That's what happens, as we saw in Sunday school, right, when you put it on yourself. Every time I mess up, I've got to start again. But if it's all about Jesus, then I certainly don't. You know, I confess, I am good at starting things. I could have been part of this, okay, here's the plan. On the first day of every week, set aside a little something. That way, when Paul comes, he doesn't have to do a big collection. Okay, I'm not as good at following it all the way through to the end. Don't nod. Um, But I'm working on it. You know, I read a a book. uh, Really, it's ironic how much time I've wasted reading books about time management and productivity and stuff. (laughs) But, but it, it, this, there was a book that was talking about this like, psychological theory about how people have, and, and this isn't literal, so don't have weird dreams or anything, but in you, you have an elephant and an elephant rider. The, the elephant rider is the logical planner, you know, who makes, uh, like, like how Aaron made a PowerPoint of all four years of college, her first day. What? You did. And then uh, on all three years, she finished in three years. Uh, and, or how I uh, will often, you know, make these elaborate plans and say, okay, God, you got this kind of thing. That's, that's the writer, and the writer holds the reins and thinks, okay, I just direct this whole thing, no problem. But then in, you also have the elephant, which is really in charge, right? Because it's the elephant that goes in what direction it wants, kind of determines the path, and it's not good enough just to have your writer under control you got to have the elephant as well. Every plotting step needs to be in the right direction. When you get off course, you need to correct. Not just by making more plans, not by starting over, but by correcting. And God will help us because you don't just have the rider on top of the elephant. This really pushes the analogy, but you have the Holy Spirit inside, guiding us from within and helping us not to do what was happening in Corinth, where we start strong and have all these good intentions and then Peter off. Why'd I close my Bible? That's a rookie move. Verse 12, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So in that time and place, what was going on in this situation, the context was that the Gentiles, the Gentile believers, could contribute financially more than their, their Jewish brothers and sisters, while the Jewish believers who were in the present struggling could contribute spiritually with leadership in the church and with the ministry of the gospel, each according to what he has. That's what we'll look at closer next week. But finishing often means I've got to think in every moment, what can I do now? How do I take that one more step toward? Like starting is exciting, right? The, boom, you start running. That's exciting. That would be favorite part of the race. In fact, I might just enter a marathon to do that, and then that was fun. I'm not running the whole thing. 
I'm sure crossing the finish line is exciting, right? Because you're, you're finally done. All those steps in between, though, are where the work gets done. And those are the important thing. And, and finishing means, okay, how do I take the next step? How do I take the next step? How do I take the next step? I remember, I think it was in the church basement, I saw a poster. It was kind of this 70s leftover hippie thing. And it was in the mid-80s. And I remember thinking it was a very pretty picture. It was a little girl with a flower giving it to a little boy. And it said, the smallest deed always exceeds the grandest intentions. The smallest deed always exceeds the grandest intentions. So that plan at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, he says, we've already laid out the plan. Let me remind you, the first day of every week, you set aside a little bit, and then when I come, I'll collect it all. That plan had potential good to it. It was potentially good. But the actual good comes on every Sunday as those saints in Corinth did put aside a little bit extra for the saints in Jerusalem. It's all about what do I do, and if I miss a week or two, you know, have you ever been on that Bible reading plan? I'm going to read it in a year, and by you know, the first day, all right, I'm going to do it. Second day, all right, I'm still doing it. By the seventh day, you're thinking, I have to really catch up, and then by the second week, I could never catch up. That's why it's more important to set a goal like, I'm going to read my Bible five days a week at least. That one you can keep. You don't need to go back and catch up. What's that next step I can take toward the finish line? How do I keep moving forward? There was a video uh, I saw online. It got passed around. It was one of those upworthy or one of these things that, that's supposed to make you feel good. But I didn't realize it at first. And three or four people that I knew had said, oh, this is great. And I thought, all right, let's see what it is. And it was on a train, I think a subway train. And it starts with this guy. And this guy, I mean, not my kind of guy. Um, he was, he was kind of like a spray tanned bro. And the first thing he did was take his shirt off, his muscle shirt on the train. And I remember I felt horrible because my first thought was what, what an idiot. What is this guy doing? Why are people sharing this video? And then he reaches over and hands it to a homeless guy who's riding, who's seeing the video, who's riding the thing. And shut up, you're crying. I, I, Oh, man, it wrecked me. He said, because the homeless guy had no shirt on. Shirtless. In, and and, and, and the, the bro, the bro, he, he wasn't cut, you know. He was, he was more like me. Little dope physique. And you could tell he was kind of embarrassed that now he was riding there with no shirt. But he had to do it. He, so he took it off and he gave it to him. He said, here. And then he asked him, and I don't think he knew anyone was, was filming. And he was talking quiet. Can I get you some food? Is there anything else? Can I buy you a, a sweatshirt? Or, and... and just the idea that now this person's semi-famous because they did this tiny little thing, anyone could have done it. But who thinks, well, no, any man, I guess, could have done it in the moment. Who thinks I'm going to take my shirt off and hand it to you? One little thing, it takes you one step closer to where you're trying to go. And one step closer to where we're trying to go is the kingdom being spread to the ends of the earth. Matthew 10, 42, Jesus says, Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There's no little acts of love or charity. They look little, 
but not when you look at them with heaven's eyes. Paul goes on, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So he uses this word fairness or equality, it's sometimes translated, twice in these two verses. And we recognize that what's being taught here is that we ought to want nothing, nobody in the kingdom of God to be down on the ground, face down, unable to stand. We need to come, like we read about in the book of Ecclesiastes, and help each other up. As we read about in Proverbs, you know, the two are better than one. A cord of three strands cannot be broken. What we don't see here is Paul wanting people who have to become poor so that they'll be humbled because it's bad that they have, and those who don't have to be given a whole bunch of free stuff so that then they can be... That's not what he has in view at all. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, not way more than yourself. And he's not looking to make one group poor and the rich group uh, and the poor group rich. We know that because he says as much. Paul was not asking all Christians to share their possessions equally. And, And a lot of people who don't know their Bible will kind of sneeringly say, well, in, in the book of Acts, or in the, in the Bible somewhere, I know that, that there was communism. Everyone kind of shared everything. They put it in a central pot, and no one really owned anything. And you know, that's almost certainly not what was happening in Acts 2, when the Christians are said to hold all things in common. When we see that played out, what does it look like? I have some extra fields. I will sell them. I will willingly bring the money and give it to the apostles so that those who have nothing can take what was my, my sideline income, and now they can have. And so when, when we have all things in common, it means you know I'm there for you. You can come to me when you are in trouble, and you know that I will help. I will provide. What's mine is yours. But when you say what's mine is yours, you don't mean walk into my house and leave with my blender and don't tell me. because what's my, you, you mean I'm here for you. And we know this is what Paul is teaching here because he does not ask these wealthy Corinthians to send money to the poorer Macedonians. He doesn't. He says, they're sending money to Jerusalem, you send money to Jerusalem. He simply asked that Corinth and Macedonia and everyone who could do its fair share in meeting the extreme need of the Christians in Jerusalem in that moment. That's why we have these kind of offerings, these, these quarterly offerings, denominational offerings that we do, because then we can take resources of abundance or out of need that are given and direct them where they need to go in that moment, to Joplin with that time, to Flint, uh, wherever it needs to go in this moment, so that there will be equality. And in verse 14, he explains what he means by fairness or equality. So that... Listen to this, your, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, so that you can supply them and later on they can help you. This is what I tell people when they come to the church and they say, look, I, I'm going to get paid in two weeks. Can the church just loan me money? I don't want a handout, but you give me money and then I'll pay it back. And sometimes people will come in and they'll even say, I'll pay with interest and that sort of thing. And I say, no, we're not a bank and we don't loan money. Here's how it works. We help you. And then later, when you can help, you give some money to help someone else. 
And you know what's wild is some of the biggest givers to the fellowship fund, I don't know what comes in uh, in, the, in the plate. I don't have any uh, reports on that, who's giving what. But I know that when people come to me often and say, I hear about this need and I want to meet this need, it's often people who themselves have received before from that fund, who now want to help. And, and that's how it works. That's the way that God set it up, going all the way back in the Old Testament and seeing His system of making sure no one is left behind in the name of God. And this is less that they'll be willing to help later. Oh yeah, you scratched my back, I'll scratch yours. It's more about that they'll be able to. That those in Jerusalem will still be functioning and still have houses to meet in as a church. That there will still be some structure there. And again, this is expedient for you. This benefits you. I once heard about a farmer whose corn always took the first prize at the state fair. Just known by everyone as the man for growing corn. And yet, he had this habit of sharing his best seed with all the farmers in the area. And, and people were a little suspicious. They were thinking, probably he's giving me like bad seeds so that he can continue to win. And when I plant, But some people planted it and said, no, this actually is very good corn. It's sort of the same stuff he has. And someone asked him, why do you do this? And he said, it's really a matter of self-interest. The winds pick up the pollen and carry it from field to field. And if my neighbors are growing inferior corn, the cross-pollinization brings down the quality of my corn, then I don't win the state medal. So this is why I'm concerned that they plant only the very best. Now, this is not the only reason to help others. It's not even the primary reason, but it is a reason. That the church is like those fields, and when we focus just on us, and we don't help those who are hurting, and we just kind of think, oh, thank you, Lord, that it's them, not us, the whole thing is brought down. When we bring others up, the whole thing is brought up. It's not a zero-sum game. God's blessings come from an infinite source. Okay, the last verse. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left, and whoever gathered little had no lack. That's a very cryptic little quote from the Old Testament. You may be it's going through the catalog of Bible stories in your mind. I'll tell you where it's from. Exodus 16. And in Exodus 16, we have laid out how it worked when God supplied food for His people as they left Egypt. And as they didn't have any real source of food, they didn't, they didn't have any even leaven to, to make the kind of bread that they would want to eat. And so God caused manna to fall from heaven. Does anyone know what manna means? What is it? Yeah, that's it. It means that what is it? That was a trick question. Because they looked at it and they were like, what is this? Oh, it's good. And of course, 20 years later, they were thinking, I don't like it anymore. But God provided. And what's interesting is, when you look at how they gathered, God said, don't gather more than you need, figuring maybe tomorrow it won't come down. Trust me, it will. And, and you know, just, just take as much as each person, an omer. You guys know, an omer, right? An omer for each person in the household. And we read in Exodus 16, 18, that people would go out and perhaps someone who was older and had a hard time bending over and gathering it wouldn't quite gather as much as the, the guy next door who was gathering a whole bunch. And, and as long as they were trying to get that omer for each person in their household, when they got the stuff back into their tent and measured it, that's what they had. Nobody had a lack. They had what they needed. Nobody had more 
God worked it out that way. And he was showing us, this is how it works in my kingdom. When someone is in that moment where they are in need, you circle them. You come around them. You lift them up. You help them. I said the last verse, but I'm going to flip back and go back to verse 9. Because this is the main reason for our sharing out of abundance or out of affliction to the very depth. Fairness and equality reign in the church because we've all been given an insanely unfair deal by God which shows us that we are recipients of great grace and so we can do these acts of grace as Paul says. For you know, verse 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. Sounds like a paradox again, right? He was rich. He became poor. We read this uh, in in Philippians uh, 2, 6 and 7. He who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He became poor. And yet, notice, that's not even what's being asked of these Corinthians. He says, I don't want you to become poor to make them rich. Jesus was as high and lifted up as possible. The highest of the high, the king of kings, and became the lowest of the low. Can we follow him even insofar as giving out of what we have as we prosper? Whatever you have, that is what you can share. Whether it's material, whether it's spiritual, whether it's your time and your presence, whatever it is, what you have is what you can share And that way, the need is met in the moment when it is most needed. I heard a story about the Depression. An old woman walking into a life insurance office in Minneapolis. She was downcast and shuffling, and of course, everyone was was having a hard time of it. Things are tough all over. And she wanted to know if she could stop paying the insurance premiums, the life insurance premiums, on her husband. Because she simply couldn't afford it, and he had been dead for several years besides. And she said, I, I, I'm sick about this, but I don't believe I can afford to make these payments anymore. And the clerk behind the desk looked up the policy, and he discovered it was worth several hundred thousand dollars, and, and that no one had explained to this woman how life insurance works. She's sitting here in rags, hungry, scraping by, and she's rich but she doesn't know it. And I think that often when you have a refugee congregation meeting in a borrowed sanctuary, they know they're rich. And when you have those of us who, compared to 99.9% of the world's population, are rich, we don't know it. We're rich in Christ. He became poor so that we, in His poverty, might become rich. He has given us enough that we can provide. And again, whether it is giving to a monetary offering, whether it's supplying the space for two other congregations to worship, whether it's to fill someone's tank with gas so that they can get to the bus station and get to where they need to go, whatever the case, He has given us enough to provide. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe it's He's given you a listening ear and you don't have that much time. But out of that dearth of time, out of that poverty of time, you find a way to sit down with them and listen. 
He has given us enough to share so that when there is a need, the church will meet it and God will be glorified in that. We'll stop with that there and kind of pick up with it next week. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these passages. And Lord, we, we do confess that when we find a, a passage that is convenient to say what we want to say, we often pigeonhole it and typecast it and only bring it out when it suits us. And Lord, I pray as we look at this passage in the next two weeks, we would see that there's a lot more to giving than what we often make of it. That, Lord, we are asked to give out of our abundance, out of our poverty, with joy, because we know that we have been given grace, and when we share, it's an act of grace, and it benefits us, as well as benefiting the one who receives. Lord, we know that that your son Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Lord, I pray that we would be more blessed this week as we go about our day each and every day, as we go to work, as we interact with our neighbors, as we go to school, as we do whatever it is that we're doing, Lord, that we would be looking for opportunities to give. And Lord, as we give, we would know that you are lifted up. In your holy name we pray.